Psalm 103. Psalm chapter 103. The poison of perfectionism. This is definitely, I think, something that we all struggle with at times, is being a perfectionist. Uh, It's poison. We'll talk about it. So, let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for loving us despite our failures. Thank you for grace. I thank you that you've not called us to work in order to earn or to be and better in order to receive. But God, that you are freely loving us and that you are freely benefiting our lives with the things that we need. Lord, let us not become proud, but continue to meet our needs. Help us to know that you are perfect and that we are not, and that you have made it that way. And help us to know who we are in you. Um, Teach us to be compassionate towards ourselves and others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So there once lived a painter named Niggle. Now, Niggle, in his mind, was a wonderful painter. He could imagine marvelous scenes and things that he aspired to paint and portray to the world. But in reality, he wasn't really that good of a painter. You see, he was the kind of painter that was really good at painting leaves, but not so good at painting trees, if you know what I mean. He was focused on the minute details, and it sometimes preoccupied him to the point that he would often start one painting and discard it the next day to start another one, and that this would happen frequently. So he has a lot of projects that were begun, but not a whole lot that were finished. That's our imperfect painter, Niggle. Well, one day, as he was painting a leaf to perfection... He was getting the curvature just perfect, the sunlight bouncing off of it in this, this beautiful, like bringing out all the fall colors and, and just the little beads of water were on it. He may have even drawn an, an, a little insect right here. This was a perfect leaf. And as he's working this leaf to perfection, he suddenly sees something bigger in his mind. This leaf suddenly became something much more. He saw from this leaf a bunch of other perfect leaves just like it. And these bunch of leaves turned into a tree. And this tree had many branches swaying in the wind. It had majestic roots digging into the earth around it. And behind the tree, he then saw more. He saw a massive forest marching over meadows. And even beyond that, he saw snow-tipped mountains towering over it all. A magnificent scene, unlike anything he'd even ever attempted before. And now everything he lived for was for this painting. He discarded everything else he'd ever done. This leaf was going to turn into the most beautiful, perfect picture he's ever, ever made. But time was short. See, Niggle had a journey that he was about to embark on. He had to take this journey. He had no choice. And he knew that it was coming very, very soon. So he had to work with haste. 
So he devoted himself to this painting, and it seemed that the more time he put into it, almost there was almost nothing to show for his work. He worked a lot here, and he steps back, and almost nothing has changed. And he couldn't get these leaves just right, and he was working and working and working. And then to make matters worse, he had one of those neighbors. You know, the ones that need you to do things all the time for them. This particular neighbor, his name was Parrish, and he had a limp. He couldn't really get around well. He couldn't do things for himself. So he called upon Niggle constantly. Niggle, 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 I need this at the grocery store. Will you go get that for me? Niggle, 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 my wife is sick. Will you go get... (laughs) Will you go get uh, uh, some medicine for her? And, and constant, constant chores. Oh, poor Niggle. And when people would drop by to visit him, he would act all nice, but really in his mind, he could not stop thinking about the painting and couldn't wait for them to leave so he can return to his work. Well, time was now ticking, and he knew that this journey that he had to make was about to begin, and he needed to finish the painting. So he started to work extra hard. And would you know it, Parrish, his neighbor, called upon him. Niggle, my wife is extremely ill. I I would totally go get the doctor, but I can't. I can't walk on this leg. And Niggle reluctantly said, Okay, as he cast longing eyes upon the unfinished painting And then looked dreadfully outside because it was pouring rain. But he did it. He went. He found the doctor. Brought the doctor to to perish, his neighbor. And then he got inside. He caught a cold that night, you see. And he tucked himself in bed. And he passed out for a week. And there, laying in bed sick, that dreadful journey that he knew he had to make had come. As he's laying in that bed... A dark figure walked into his room, draped in black robes. It is time. And Niggle sat up terrified. No, it cannot be. I'm not done with my painting. I need just a little more time. Please, a little more time. And the dark black robe figure said, it is time. And Niggle was forced to board a train. And on the train, he's moving towards he knows not where. And while he's on the train, he hears two voices in conversation. The first voice is a critical voice. The second voice is a compassionate voice. And this is the conversation he overhears. Something like this. The first critical voice says, That fool niggle, he wasted his life fiddling around with things and could never focus and get anything done. That pathetic painting he wanted to do, he couldn't even do that. What in his life... Does he have to show for? Nothing. A waste of life. But the second voice responded. The compassionate voice said, I I don't think that you should be so harsh on the guy. I mean, he did sacrifice himself for his neighbor, Parrish. He lived for other people. And Niggle sat there, not really sure what to think about his life. And soon the train stopped and Niggle got off where he was... All right, this is your destination. The train leaves. And Niggle looks around. And there's something strangely familiar about this place he'd never been to. And he looked around. And ahead, there was a tree. 
And he walks up towards it. And would you know, that leaf looks familiar. That looks like the one I painted. And wait a minute, look at that leaf. And whoa. And he stepped back. And he saw this tree. It had many branches swaying in the wind. It had majestic roots spreading out into the earth. My tree! That's my tree, the one I, I wanted to paint. And it's finished. Look at my tree. And he's talking out loud to himself, all pleased. And he's like, I can't believe it. It looks even better than what I tried to do. It's like what I was thinking exactly. It's so beautiful. And he's just ecstatic. And then, and then, and then he's walking around it. And, he's, and, and he looks past the tree now. And he realizes something more is there. Behind the tree, there is this massive forest marching over meadows. And beyond the forest marching over meadows, he sees a snow-tipped mountain towering over everything. And he realizes, I am in my painting. Except it's not a painting. This is real. This is more real than I even imagined in my mind. What a gift. What a gift. What a gift. And while he's shouting ecstatic, somebody taps him on the shoulder. He turns around. And would you believe it? It was Parrish. Parrish was walking. And he was jumping and dancing. And he was excited to be in this place. And, and, and Niggle and Parrish come together. And he sh- he's excited to show him the tree and the things. I, I, I made all... Like, this is stuff I, I imagined in my mind. And I never got to do it in my lifetime. And, and here it is. It's all... It's all Finished, and it looks beautiful. And then Niggle and Parrish walk off together to explore more of this world that he had never, ever been able to see before. That story is called Leaf by Niggle. Catchy title indeed. <laughs> it was written by J.R.R. Tolkien in this context. You guys might know that J.R.R. Tolkien is the writer of The Lord of the Rings. It is widely regarded as one of the greatest epics ever written. And not used lightly, that word epic is a true word. Because uh, C.S. Lewis, well, you know, he encouraged Tolkien. But Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings as this massive tale. And when he began to write this tale, he was later on in life. And World War II had just begun. And he knew the horrors of war, for he had fought in World War I. And London, of course, was a central place for World War I and World War II. And there were always threats that the Germans would bomb the city. And Tolkien, to be honest, had no clue if he would even survive the war. And he had just begun The Lord of the Rings. But see, here's the thing. Like Niggle, Tolkien had in his mind the entire epic, but it just hadn't been written yet. And he had just started it. And he was worried sick that he would not be able to finish it. And Tolkien himself was a bit of a perfectionist. If you read his works, you can see that. And he had a hard time motivating himself at times to do this massive work. It was overbearing. And, and not to mention, am I ever going to finish it? Is it even worth it? And here's the backstory. Before all this, he had spent decades writing and writing and writing in preparation for the story Lord of the Rings. This is what I mean. He wrote histories. He wrote 
new languages that he invented. He wrote family trees for all these kings of these different kingdoms. All these things were written for much of his life, for decades, and now he's starting Lord of the Rings. This is his life work, literally, and he's worried he won't be able to finish it. Well, he has a dream, and he wakes up and writes it down. And this story, Leaf by Niggle, is what he dreamed. Now, as you can see in the story, Tolkien saw himself as Niggle. And Tolkien wanted assurance that the thing that he was working on would come to fruition. That it would come in some sense to its perfection. Now, to understand maybe the story even more so, you need to understand what Niggle means. Now, all the smirkers made it very hard for me to tell the story when I kept saying niggle. It's not the other word you're thinking of. It's an L. (laughs) Niggle means... (laughs) Niggle is a verb. And it's a verb, and don't miss this. Niggle means to find fault, to criticize, or to spend time on petty details. That's what it means to niggle. To find fault, to criticize, or to spend time on petty details. That was Niggle in the story, right? Man, none of his paintings were good enough. I kept discarding them. This perfectionist. And spent so much time on a leaf. And maybe one more leaf. And just one more leaf. They could never get to the bigger thing. He, he just spends so much time finding fault with that. And how I can perfect it. And criticizing that. And spending so much time on petty little things. That's what it means to niggle. Now, there's a niggle inside of each and every single one of us. You know, I did not think this was funny when I planned it. (laughs) So funny. Um, There's that, there's that niggle inside of us that finds fault, that criticizes, that spends too much time on petty little things. Why? We often become niggles because... Don't miss this. <laughs> Try to keep your composure. Don't miss it. You got this. We often become niggles because we fear... That we are going to die in insignificance. We're afraid that we're not going to amount to much. So something inside of us tells us, do better, be more. And we strive and we start to criticize and we overanalyze. And we, we go on this path that says, perfectionism. Be a perfectionist to become a somebody. Let's now read Psalm 103, verse 8. Verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great his love toward those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Catch verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, 
So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Because God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Isn't that a beautiful piece of poetry from the Psalms? It goes on and on and tells us about how compassionate, how understanding, how patient, loving, and forgiving God is toward us. And at the very end of this, it says He is all of these things to us. He's compassionate towards us because He knows what you're made from. He knows what you're made of. Dust. God does not expect dust to be perfect. What this psalm tells me, and it's beautiful, what this psalm tells me is that God does not niggle. (laughs) He does not overanalyze you and scrutinize and find fault and spend all this time on the petty little things of your life and say, Christian, you just need to get that better man overlooking all these good things that he made about Christian and like these little things. Because I feel like sometimes we feel like God is a niggler because we hear pastors or other Christians or spiritual leaders or the church or whatever, your institution, and they're constantly talking about sin, sin. (laughs) They're like prancing in the fields of sin and they're like, don't do this. They're always pointing out where we're all failing in sin and and we get this perception that's like, ooh, the gospel's good news, huh? And, and we hear it talked about in a way that focuses on the bad news. But according to Psalm 103, God is not niggle. He doesn't look that way towards us. As a father is understanding towards the imperfections of his son, as he shows compassion to his son, it says God shows compassion to us. You don't expect a toddler to speak perfectly, to throw a 90 mile an hour fastball, to cook a meal for the whole family, to read Shakespeare fluently, to understand Fyodor Dostoevsky perfectly, or even to say that. (laughs) You don't expect that from a child. And God does not expect this from us. He doesn't expect you to be flawless, to be perfect. To begin understanding and embracing your call the second you become a Christian and start influencing the world and saving everybody down the street. And we hear these ideals and we think that we should become like that, but God doesn't say that anywhere. He's very compassionate, He's very understanding. And so here's my question if God doesn't niggle, then why do we? Why are we finding fault with ourselves? Why are we critiquing and criticizing constantly? Why are we spending so much time over the petty little things in our life? If He can be compassionate to us, how can I not be compassionate to myself? That's a massive truth that doesn't even compare. If almighty, quote, perfect, I'll explain that a little later, (laughs) almighty, perfect God can have compassion for imperfect me, should I not have even more compassion for me? 
Yet I tend to find myself becoming a perfectionist and being harsh on myself because deep down inside I have failed to understand that He is God and I'm not. Don't forget, you're not God. Have a, if God can have compassion on you, have a little compassion on yourself. Now, I was reminded very late this afternoon about the Disney movie Snow White. And this is what created the whole idea to me. Uh, so here we go. Uh, you guys remember and the Disney version, because you know Disney changes all the traditional fairy tales. If you don't know that, they do. <laughs> the Disney version of Snow White goes like this. Blah, 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 blah. Then there's Snow White in her cottage all alone. <laughs> and the queen who's envious that Snow White is more fair than her disguises herself as a wicked little ugly witch. And she is concocted, as we know, because we saw the scene earlier, a poison apple. Now, when she comes to Snow White, she doesn't come up to Snow White and say... Here's a poison apple. Eat it, you'll die. (laughs) She comes to Snow White and begins to have a friendly discussion. What are you making, blueberry pies? Ooh, don't you know all the young men want apple pies these days? (laughs) And she holds out the red apple, the poison one. Uh, And then, you know, you might remember all the birds come and swarm in on her. And she's like, ha! And then Snow White, she says, shame on you birds for picking on an old lady. And she has compassion on her now. And she like, has all this pity. Probably not compassion. Pity is the right word. All this pity for her and brings the old woman inside her house now. And now the wicked queen, the witch, the ugly old woman, seizes the moment of weakness in Snow White and realizes that she can play the victim here. Oh, you saved me from those birds. I must reward you. This apple is no ordinary apple. It's a... You remember what she calls it? It's been a long time for us, huh? It was for me too. Uh, She calls it a wishing apple. Snow White's intrigued. A wishing apple. Yeah, you take one bite of this apple and all your wishes come true. So what are you wishing for, young lady? And Snow White, well, you guys know what she's wishing for. You remember her at the well, right? Prince Charming. And so she takes the apple and she's declaring out loud her wishes. I want this man. I want this beautiful prince. And you can almost hear this sense of like, I'm not worthy of him in her voice. But she's yearning for this, to be elevated to this man that she wants to do and make everything and make her feel so good. And so she voices that. And then, and then the ugly little witch, eat it now, eat it! Hurry up, don't let the wish go cold! <laughs> and Snow White takes it and bites into it. And of course we know that it was not a wishing apple, it was a poison apple. And what was at first a very sweet bite became very bitter as it got into her mouth. And then as the bitterness went down inside of her, Snow White is on the floor. The next scene just shows her hand falling into the frame and the apple rolls off with a bite into it. You see, that apple is a lot like what I had been thinking about perfectionism all week. Your perfectionist tendencies are that poison apple. 
It comes to you, perfectionism does, and it promises, hey, whatever your wishes are, whatever you want to be, whoever you think you're not worthy to be with, blah, 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 blah. Perfectionism is the answer. So be more, do more, be better, do better. Elevate your game. Become better and start criticizing your weaknesses and become a perfectionist. That's how it comes to you. Your dreams will come true. You will finally become somebody. But once we bite into perfectionism, we realize that it's poison. And this is what perfectionist tendencies do to us. They poison us two ways. Like Snow White, she was literally paralyzed. She was dead. Perfectionism will paralyze you. Perfectionism will criticize you. So this is the poison. It's paralyzing, it's criticizing. Number one, paralyzing. Perfectionism promises, oh, you'll be so much more. But you know what ends up happening? You guys know this. You heard this in the niggle story too. It paralyzes you with the fear of failure. If I'm aiming for perfect... And I'm assessing my abilities or the things I have in front of me. And I realize I can't get to perfect. What do we do? We don't even start in the first place. You know how many wonderful stories I had in my mind? You know how many awesome papers in school I thought of? Do you know how many I started? (laughs) You guys know, you procrastinate the paper to the very end because you know that pressure will get the paper out of you. Because perfectionist tendencies within me say, don't start the paper too early because I know it'll never be good enough. So I'll just do it when I finally have just enough time left so I just, bleh, whatever's there. I, you know, it's not that good because I don't really have time for it anyways. So we make ourselves feel better about our sloppy job because we say, well, you know, I could have done a good one, but I just chose to wait to the last minute. And this fear of failure causes us to never go and do something. Because we say, if I can't put out my best, I want nobody to see it at all. And pause and think about what we're missing in life because of that paralyzing perfectionist tendency that we're afraid of failing. Everybody who does something well has failed hundreds of times behind that well-done product you've seen. Thomas Edison didn't think of the light bulb. Sit down. Voila, there it is. He was courageous enough to fail and 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 light bulb! We wouldn't have the light bulb if he wasn't willing to fail in order to learn how to succeed. The poison apple of perfectionism will paralyze you severely from doing the things that God has made you to do. Uh, Tim Keller says this, and for me, this frees up the tendency to be perfect. He says this, if the God of the Bible exists and there is a true reality beneath and behind this one, in other words, there's more than what this life appears, So if God exists and there's a real 
reality behind this. And this life is not the only life then. What this means is every good endeavor, even the simplest ones pursued in response to God's calling, can matter forever. What's he saying? If there is more to life than just this life, then the things we do in this life, if, re- if pursued in response to God's calling, then the things done in this life will matter in the next life. They will matter forever. And this is what we learn in the Nibble story. The things he tried to do, even insignificant, even though he failed and failed and failed, the painting he tried to paint, it mattered in the next world. It became a very part of who he was in the next world. And so don't let perfectionism stop you from making the effort or making the attempt to go for it. Even if you fail, even if it's imperfect, it's affecting who you are and what could happen in the future. God isn't going to judge you at the end of everything and say, well, how come you were such a terrible poet? How come you were so bad at business I called you to those things you should have been better he's not he's just going to see did you do it I I understand Christian that you failed a few times but you responded to my call and and your your failures here look at it here now in light of eternity I I see them as perfect the whole niggle story reminds me of this verse Philippians 1 6 He who has began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Paraphrase version. Right? What God has begun, He will perfect, He will complete. And there are things in us that we are fearful to begin because we don't know if we can finish it. But here's the point. God is not calling you to perfect anything. He's not calling you to finish it. He's saying begin it. Participate with me in it. I will bring it to its proper completion. So, conclusion is, don't fear failure. Embrace, roll with it, learn from it, and let God do the perfecting in His time. So, perfectionism is paralyzing, but here's the second thing is that it's also criticizing. And here's how it works. If I hold myself to perfectionistic standards, what do I hold other people to? I then become a critical person. I begin to judge people. I realize that I fail here and then I'm quick to make myself feel better about my failures. I'm quick to point out how other people are doing the same failure. But on the reverse side, if I am compassionate with myself... How will I be towards other people? I'm going to be a lot more understanding and compassionate of their weaknesses and failures. You see, this is where it all begins. Psalm 103. It's realizing that God is compassionate towards us so that we can be compassionate towards ourselves that we can in turn then be compassionate towards others. Self-compassion is what we need. Not perfectionism. So let's find let's let's finish with this question. What is perfectionism? 
I'm sorry. Let's read that. What is true perfection? What does it mean to be perfect? We talk about God's perfect. You don't need to be. <laughs> what does that even mean? Because when I think of perfect, this is probably what you think of. I think of two things. At least the way I hear it used. I think of a perfect morality. God is perfect. And our minds go to, it means he does not sin. It means he does all things correctly and properly. There's no evil in him. That's perfect. We are imperfect because we sin and we do bad things. The second way we think of perfect is in terms of ability. God is perfect. That means he wants to do something and he does it. Bam! There's no limitations on him. We are imperfect. I want to do something. Ah, I can't do it quite right. I mess up. I'm imperfect. Right? Is that how you guys think of perfect a lot? Like in those two ways? At least that's how I hear it used all the time. But here's what blew me away in uh, the Wednesday night uh, Bible study we had at the high schoolers at my house. We were in Luke 6. And this is what Jesus says. He's talking about loving your neighbor. And then he concludes it like this. Not loving neighbor. He went further. Loving enemy. He concludes it like this. You shall be merciful because your Father in heaven is merciful. Now, because I have read the gospel several times, my mind immediately went to Matthew 5.48. Why? Because that's where Matthew writes about the same thing Jesus said. You shall love your enemies. Turn the cheek, right? Give your cloak. Go the extra mile. And then he concludes that section with this. You shall be perfect because your heavenly Father is perfect. So, do you see what just happened here? Matthew says that Jesus said, be perfect, because God is perfect. Luke says, be merciful, because God is merciful. And they're clearly talking about the same thing. Because the paragraph before that is the same. So, what the heck is going on? I think that this is what's going on. I think we are realizing between Matthew and Luke what it really means to be God. What it really means to be, quote, perfect. Perfect is not a thing of spotless morality. It's not a thing of unlimited ability. Perfect is the practice of being merciful like God is merciful. Perfect is the idea of becoming what we are made and built to be. We aren't made and built to be perfectionists and hard on ourselves and hard on each other. Because God is saying, I am not that way towards you. I'm merciful and compassionate and understanding and I'm working with you and not beating you over the head. So stop doing that to yourself. And practice mercy with yourself. Practice self-compassion so that you can now be that same way with others. You can understand their faults and failures and weaknesses. And you can, you can meet them in the way you meet yourself in the way that God meets with you. That's what it means to be perfect. That's what Jesus is calling us to. True perfection. It's not this niggle-like life where we're criticizing and critiquing and, and this insecurity. And we're trying to become better and more and prove ourselves. And then, and then point out all the flaws of the people that are not living up to that. That's not perfect. That's horrible. That's poison. That's prison. But man, 
How perfect this would be, wouldn't it? If we practice self-compassion and then extended that to other compassion. That's what I think Jesus is calling us to when he says be perfect. He's calling us to practice his behavior towards us, towards ourselves and others. Practice it towards yourself and others. Let's pray.